Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast newscast. Colette, Tom and Paul here to take you through the latest media law headlines. We have demands from the Home Office, a record number of IPSO complaints, liability for tech company leaders, an interesting MPI claim and a potential Riley-style defamation claim, and over in North America, a claim against Paramount by the stars of the 1968 Romeo and Juliets. But first, I want to start with Human Rights Watch's warning that the UK is about to be labelled as a human rights abuser if it continues to clamp down on protest rights and work towards the replacement of the Human Rights Act with the Bill of Rights. This warning came just days before the UK government announced its proposals to amend the Public Order Bill to widen police powers for disruptive protests. Number 10 said the changes would mean police would not have to wait for disruption to take place to shut down a protest. It said forces could also consider the total impact of a series of protests by the same group, rather than seeing them in standalone incidents. I want to get your thoughts on the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's comments that the right to protest is a fundamental principle of our democracy, but that it is not not absolute, and that a balance must be struck by the rights of individuals and the rights of the hardworking majority to go about their day-to-day business. Uh, Rishi Sunak is absolutely right. Uh, He has correctly identified uh, that the right to protest is not an absolute right, but must, in certain circumstances, give way to the rights of others. Where he and his government are wrong is in where that line should be drawn. And that is the problem. Um, This government seems to think that the line for shutting down protests should be uh, where it is inconvenient, particularly where it is inconvenient to them. Uh, and not, for example, where it should be, which is when there is a genuine threat to the rights and freedoms of others, and where shutting down the protest is the only proportionate thing that the state can do to protect those competing rights. Well, that's a very exacting standard. It's the standard under the European Convention, under Article 10. Uh, The European Convention and Article 10 are things that uh, this government does not like and would quite like to be rid of. Um, uh, and thus uh, this debate ends up in the public eye. But uh, it's a classic politician's answer, isn't it, Um, that Rishi Sunak has given. He has uh, correctly identified uh, in very broad principle terms uh, the situation and uh, has managed by doing that uh, to say something really quite misleading. I agree with everything that Tom's just said. And, of course, the other problem is... um not only how these uh, laws will be used, but how they will be misused as well, particularly if it's a kind of preventative power that allows a police force to step in before a protest has actually taken place. That can easily be seen to be ripe for misuse. Um, But of course, it's a type of... It's exactly the type of legislative provision uh, that I would expect this government to bring in. You're absolutely right, Paul. And if you think back to the uh, protests um, in Clapham in the uh, aftermath of the death of Sarah Everard and the way that that was policed, yeah. the police there believed that they were operating within the bounds of the existing law, which our government now says is insufficiently tough. Uh, and what did the police do? They massively over-policed. They overstretched. They went beyond uh, the... Uh, legal powers that they had and ended up unlawfully policing that protest in a way that uh, prevented those present properly from exercising uh, their speech rights. Um, So the risk is very real. 
the police have a track record in this com- country of going beyond the powers that they're given, and the more powers that are given to them, the greater the uh, chance of very substantial overstep. It's worth mentioning that this amendment to the public order bill has not turned into law yet. Um, it's still to go through the Commons, where it will obviously uh, receive a lot of scrutiny. And um, we will, of course, keep listeners updated as to how this develops. Moving on to freedom from tortures debacle with the Home Office. This is a charity which supports torture victims, at, which has defied the Home Office's demands to delete a video of Suella Braverman being confronted by a Holocaust survivor over her language on immigration. The video shows an 83-year-old Holocaust survivor confronting the government minister during a meeting at her Fairham constituency in Hampshire. The Home Office has said the one minute video on Twitter misrepresents the interaction because it presents selected excerpts of Miss Braverman's response, which was several minutes long. In response to the Home Office's demand to remove the footage, Freedom From Torture Chief Executive said, as an organisation providing therapy to torture survivors who feel targeted by her language and who know firsthand where such dehumanising language can lead, we will not do so. She has used language she should be ashamed of, and we will not be pressured into helping her hide it. Was it appropriate for the Home Office to demand that this video be taken down? <laughs> no, it was not. Emphatically, no. Sometimes uh, on this podcast, we have to deal with uh, difficult free speech issues. Uh, and this is, exam- is an example of a not difficult free speech problem. It is a textbook uh, abuse of power by the government. Um, there, there are two features of freedom of expression that, that uh, are at stake here. Uh, the first is that whenever a government tries to suppress speech that it does not like, uh, simply because it doesn't like it, it interferes with uh, free speech in the grossest of ways. So this is a slam dunk breach of um, uh, free speech just by asking for the video to be taken down the government has overstepped the mark, uh, particularly galling that it's a civil service uh, in in this case, which shouldn't have any political affiliations uh, whatsoever. Uh, the second aspect, of course, that hasn't come up um, has been the, the way that commentators have sought to excuse uh, the Home Office actions by suggesting that actually what Freedom From Torture had uh, released was in some way a misrepresentation of Suella Braverman's position. Um, What Freedom From Torture did was to truncate the video, but they haven't altered it. They haven't altered the text of uh, Braverman's response in which she emphatically said she refuses to apologise for the language that she uses in response, in direct response to a Holocaust survivor saying, your language is not only inflammatory, but is also straight from the Nazi playbook. And Swella Braverman's response is, well, I'm not going to apologise for that. In any event, the, the neat free speech point that I just want to quickly take up is that it's a strong, it's a strong principle of free speech that speech can exaggerate a point. So... In cutting the video to get to the gist of what um, uh, Braverman was saying, we could, of course, say that that was an exaggeration, that perhaps she did dress it up a little bit before she got to that point. So is exaggeration perhaps 
but it's not misrepresentation. The idea that somehow this is misinformation is of itself misinformation. Speaking of exaggeration, uh, I want to mention Jeremy Clarkson's column on Meghan Markle for The Sun, dated the 16th of December 2022, which received the most complaints in Ipsos history. The latest report is from the Press Gazette and numbers the complaints at 20,800 on the 20th of December 2022. Uh, Complainants accused Clarkson of misogyny for his derogatory Game of Thrones reference. Clause 12 of the Editor's Codes of Practice prohibits publishers from making prejudicial or prerogative reference to an individual's race, colour, religion, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation or any other physical or mental illness or disability. It also says details of an individual's race, colour, religion, gender identity or sexual orientation, etc. should not be described in the story unless genuinely relevant. Breaches of Clause 12 are rare, and in most instances where it is invoked, Ipso determines that the contents does not engage it. Do we think that these complaints will be upheld? Uh, no, I don't think the complaint will be upheld. Uh, because, uh, as you say, uh, the discrimination clause is difficult to, to succeed with. Uh, the the reason why the discrimination clause, when you when you look at the complaints together, the reason why they don't tend to succeed, well, there's a couple of points that could be made. First of all, there's a complication with discrimination complaints because um, often they are complaints about group, what could be called group discrimination to to target um, and say. Uh, prejudicial things about a, a, a group uh, of individuals rather than a specific individual. So that's one reason why the statistics look so low. Uh, another reason why I think we have cause to be pessimistic is that Ipso just doesn't uphold complaints if it can get away with it, um, which is which is a little unfair on Ipso of me to say that, but only slightly for the simple reason that Ipso isn't in a great position to uphold complaints. Um, because if it annoys its members too much, they'll leave. The The arrangement binding Ipso's members to Ipso is actually quite flimsy. It's flimsier than people realise. Um, there is a so-called contract between members uh, and, and Ipso. There's nothing really to keep members there, um, especially in a political climate in which this government <laughs> couldn't make it clearer that it doesn't take press reform seriously. But I think the third reason why we should be pessimistic about this complaint being upheld is because there is a precedent of sorts. Colette, when you told me that this had attracted a record number of complaints, I was doubtful because I was reminded of a different case and a different complaint. But actually, it occurs to me that that complaint was brought when Ipso was called the Press Complaints Commission. And that complaint uh, related to an article written by John Muir shortly after the death of Stephen Gately. Uh, That was written in uh, 2009, in which John Muir had attacked the idea of uh, gay marriage, gay uh, relationships as... uh, well, I'm not. I'm not going to say how she attacked it. She just attacked it. Uh, she attacked the idea of gay marriage and uh, was um, 
really quite heartless about the death of um, Stephen Gately. Um, the PCC did not uphold those complaints. It felt that although uh, Mule's words were uh, inflammatory, um, they were within Muir's freedom of expression. Um, I think the uh, I think Ipso will do exactly the same thing here with Clarkson. I think they will say that this wasn't directly discriminatory. Uh, it was just um, his exaggerated, horrible sense of himself, the world around him, that it was part of his freedom of expression, that whilst very few people would be attracted to, well, I would hope very few people would be attracted to that way of thinking, he was entitled to hold an opinion about it. I'm reminded of uh, a fantastic movie from the 1990s called Wag the Dog, American political satire. Uh, And particularly a moment in that film where the spin doctor played by Robert De Niro accosts an official at the CIA who's insisting that the war that De Niro and his acolytes are trying to simulate between the United States and Albania doesn't exist, that their satellites prove emphatically there is no war. And De Niro, confident that the public believes the narrative he sold them, asks the CIA official, what good are your satellites then if they show no war? Because there ain't no war but ours. And his point there is if people believe something, then it can shed some doubt on the efficacy of the institutions that are supposed to actually officiate on them. Here we have 20,000 complaints to Ipso. If Ipso doesn't uphold those complaints, and I completely agree with Paul in terms of the precedents on this and all the... Uh, everything we know about Ipso points to them rejecting these complaints. But if Ipso doesn't uphold complaints on a matter where 20,000 people have complained about it, what use is it? If it is that out of touch with the standards of society. Um, I think it just is another nail in the coffin of this quote-unquote regulator that seems to me to have been utterly ineffective, just as its predecessor was. Uh, and no doubt, just as whatever succeeds it will be, I'm afraid. Uh, it just is another way in which we can show the whole regulator, the whole idea of essentially self-regulation by the press to be meaningless. I think I think another aspect, I mean, as you know, I could talk about this all day, but I think something else to just bear in mind, the, the press recognition panel, which of its, itself is an organisation that was set up in the aftermath of the Leveson inquiry, but that insists on referring to Ipso as the trade complaints handling body. Um, it uh, refuses to recognise it as a uh, as a regulator for for several different reasons. Um, I suspect another uh, facet of the 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 complaint or complaints such as they are that Ipso will grasp onto is either that one. The individuals involved themselves haven't complained, uh, which is different to the Jan Muir story because Andrew Cowell, uh, the surviving partner, did complain. He was a complainant. Um, and I think if uh, Harry or Meghan 
were minded to complain. It's interesting that Clarkson has, which they might have done, but it's interesting that Clarkson has sent an apology of sorts, albeit to um, uh, Harry. And this is another facet of Ipso decision-making, which I would urge everyone to reflect on and complain about, which is that if the parties between themselves come up with a solution such as an apology if they if if the complainant agrees that the apology is sufficient to deal with their complaint ipso doesn't make a resolution it it doesn't make a finding on the complaint um so the this is important for the statistics because ipso is meant to be empowered to be able to find newspapers that consistently breach the standards code but if ipso is uh, allowing as it does, publishers to settle complaints and then say, well, there's, there's, uh, we're not going to make a finding here on breach. It's an easy way for newspapers to avoid ever being liable for a fine. And it also lets Ipso say that everything's working because it hasn't had to issue a fine. While we're on the topic of holding people to accounts, I want to talk about the rebel amendment to the online safety bill that won opposition support to hold tech executive whose platforms persistently fail to protect children from online harm to face criminal charges. Under the proposed changes, senior members at tech firms will be criminally liable for repeated breaches of their duty of care to children and could face up to two years in jail. The government is expected to target bosses who ignore enforcement notices from Ofcom in relation to breaches of their child safety duties, which include protecting children from harmful content such as material promoting self-harm and eating disorders. However, it will not criminalise executives who have acted in good faith and comply in a proportionate way with their duties. Do we think this amendment will have any effect? Unless they make it a non-delegable duty, they'll never be able to pin it on anybody. Um, it's a concept familiar to tort lawyers, but perhaps less familiar outside of tort. Um, but if the uh, if it's possible for the executives to delegate the duty to someone else, then they'll be able to say, well, I acted in good faith by appointing Fred Bloggs here to deal with it. And then they're off the hook. And because the legislation doesn't target, target Fred Bloggs, Fred Bloggs is off the hook. Uh, and it's fine. So unless they make it a non-delegable duty, then um, it'll be meaningless. And they probably won't, because um, I don't suspect that the government actually wants to target tech executives. I think it wants to look tough. And probably someone in the government has already spotted this and said, hey, the amendment probably doesn't do de- non-delegable duties. So let's let it slide. But I haven't read it. So I, I mean, I'm just speculating. Moving away from uh, new regulations and on to decided decisions, I just want to mention briefly the judgment that was handed down on the 11th of January 2023, refusing the defendant's application to strike out and summary judgments and for summary judgments in FKJ and RVT. This is a misuse of private information claim relating to the defendant's possession and retention of the claimant's private WhatsApp messages to her now husband and female best friend. The messages were used as evidence against her during her unsuccessful claim in the employment tribunal against the defendants, in which she alleged sex discrimination, unfair dismissal and wrongful dismissal. 
The claimant alleges that RVT hacked into her WhatsApp messages. The defendant's explanation for the possession is twofold. First, a substantial quantity of messages were found on the claimant's work laptop when it was reviewed to establish why the claimant was attempting to log in after she was dismissed. Second, two further transfers of messages had been received via letters from an anonymous source. The second letter provided updated logs from the claimant's messages with her husband and her best friend from the 22nd of December 2017, i.e. the day after her dismissal, to April 2018. The claim will now proceed to trial and we will, of course, keep listeners updated. Um, The last thing I want to mention in the UK is Andrew Bridgen's potential Riley-style defamation claim following his Holocaust tweets uh, from the 12th of January this year. Um, Tom, you've taken a look at this. Do you want to explain to listeners what's going on? Uh, Yes, absolutely. So um, uh, this all arises out of a tweet that Andrew Bridgen put out um, a short time ago. Uh, which was an anti-vaxxing tweet, uh, and he called the COVID vaccination uh, the greatest crime inflicted on humanity since the Holocaust. Now, that attracted a great deal of criticism, unsurprisingly, from across the political spectrum and led to the Conservative Party withdrawing the whip from him, so he now sits as an independent in the House of Commons. Um, He has put out another statement uh, on, again, on Twitter, which um, is rather defensive, uh, this one, uh, and it's definitely worthy of comment. Um, so this is what he says verbatim. My tweet of 11th of January was in no way anti-Semitic. Indeed, it alluded to the Holocaust being the most heinous crime against humanity in living memory. Of course, if anyone is genuinely offended by my use of such imagery, then I apologize for any offense caused. I wholeheartedly refute any suggestion that I am racist. And then we get to the good bit. I am currently speaking to a legal team who will commence action against those who have led the call suggesting that I am. He's going to do a Riley. That's what this means. And uh, regular listeners will know what I mean by this, but uh, irregular listeners might not. Or maybe regular listeners have forgotten because it's a whole new year now. So we'll briefly cover it. Um, Last year, Rachel Riley won a libel case. Uh, after uh, a tweet of hers was interpreted by the Labour staffer Laura Murray uh, uh, as uh, suggesting that Jeremy Corbyn deserved to be violently attacked. After uh, Riley sued, saying that's not what my tweet meant at all, Uh, and of course I would never say such things, and it's uh, defamatory of me to say that, uh, it's defamatory of me to say that I would say something like that. Bridgen is essentially saying the same thing. He put out a tweet that drew some comparison between the COVID-19 vaccination program and the Holocaust, which is classically anti-Semitic um, uh, to a lot of people. Right? The interpretation a lot of people have is you are misusing the memory of the Holocaust in order to make a cheap political point that uh, relates to a conspiracy theory. Um, as such, it has been interpreted by many people as anti-Semitic. What Bridgen is now threatening to do is to sue anyone who said that. And if Riley, if the approach taken in Riley is taken here, then any person who did not hyperlink 
to Bridgen's original tweet when they made that criticism of him and implied that he was being racist could well be subject to that case and required to prove as a matter of truth rather than opinion, because the court would not be treating it as opinion. That was the point of the Riley decision. Um, that Bridgen is in fact racist, that he is in fact anti-Semitic, um, which would be very difficult to do because whether a person is a racist or an anti-Semite is, generally speaking, a matter of opinion. Um, so I think this is an example of exactly where things can and may well go wrong in the aftermath of Riley. It's a point I've made before, um, but I think it's fascinating that we've, we've now got a p politician who's going to jump on that and use it. And how many more will we see now? Bridgen is not the only conspiracy theorist politician out there. How many more will say controversial things, wait to be picked up on it, and then start threatening libel claims against anyone who uh, criticizes them for it? It's a slippery slope. Well, and also there's an, there's an interesting uh, element to this as well, isn't there? I think, if I've got my facts right, if I haven't, correct me. Um, but it was Matt Hancock. Matt Hancock certainly accused him of being anti-Semitic. Um, but he said it in the in the house. So now, if you're quoting Matt Hancock, you said it in the house. Then uh, that's fine. Qualif qualified privilege, absolute absolute privilege, privilege for, for the house. Yeah, uh, I always get my privileges confused. Um, but I've got a feeling, but I now can't find it. I've got a feeling that Matt Hancock repeated that in a tweet for which he would then lose absolute privilege. Well, unless he was quoting himself. Mm. Yeah. The plot thickens. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. That's, well, I think it's all very problematic, but that is, of course, for the record, as everything is in this. Yeah, no, he has. A, he has. This is sorry. just my opinion. Hancock did put it in a tweet, according to Bridgen. Um, Was he going to sue a, him as well? There is a tweet from Bridgen. Please let there be Bridgen Saying, Matt Hancock has still not removed his defamatory tweet, falsely alleging that I am an anti-Semitic. I, oh, wow. I will allow Matt three days to apologise publicly for calling me an anti-Semite and racist, or he will be contacted by my legal team. Bridgen versus Hancock, showdown for the ages. Mm. Let's 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 make it happen. <laughs> I don't like that 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 this can only happen because of a precedent with which I roundly disagree. <laughs> but um, I still kind of want to see it. Hey, Wagatha happened because we predicted it. So this is just the next prediction, twenty twenty three. Should start making bets on these sorts of things, really. Yeah, we should really. Um, the final thing I want to mention today is a, a case that's been launched in America by the two leads of the 1968 adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, who are suing Paramount Pictures for child abuse over a nude scene in the film. Olivia Hussey and Leonard Whitting, who were 15 and 16 respectively at the time of production, have filed a lawsuit on 30th of December 2022, accusing the studio of sexual exploitation. The player came... The pair claimed that the director, Franco Zaffrelli, told them that there would be no nudity and flesh-coloured items would be worn in the bedroom scene, but then later insisted that, before, that the, they would have to perform nude 
or the picture would fail. So Freddie died in 2019. The complaint alleges that the pair have suffered mental anguish and emotional distress in the years since and have lost out on job opportunities. Damages are being sought at to be in excess of 500 million. The lawsuit has arrived at the end of a temporary suspension of California's statutes of limitations for childhood sexual abuse cases. This is one of a flood of other suits submitted before the deadline on the 31st of December. Paramount has yet to respond. So we don't really have much that we can discuss other than mentioning that it's uh, it's coming and we will, of course, keep listeners updated along the way. Yeah, that, that promises to be uh, a really fascinating case. Um, I've thought for some time that that's exactly the sort of case that could well get brought. Um, there'll be interesting questions around whose right it was to consent to the filming at the time, given that both of the leads in that movie were minors. They will presumably, though I'm not sure exactly what the relevant law would have been at the time in the relevant jurisdiction. I suppose this was probably filmed in California. Um, so I'm not quite sure what the law would have been in at, at the time, uh, but presumably some sort of parental consent would have been required. If given, there's a really interesting legal question about whether the children would even have standing to bring such a claim. But that is what I find interesting about it, because it, it points up the difficulties for the law that we can encounter when you have the capacity for parents to consent to things that children either do not want at the time or later come to regret. Uh, so for me, that this, this, this is potentially the start of what I suspect will end up being uh, a series of cases brought along these sorts of lines. I say it's the start. There, there is precedent. There have been cases brought before um, along not dissimilar lines. Um, but this is the first time that a major Hollywood studio has been on the receiving end of such a, a claim rather than, say, a photographer or a magazine or something like uh, like that. Um, so, yeah, it will be very interesting to see what happens. Um, uh, I suspect, like most civil litigation in the US, it will settle um, before it gets to court. Um, but that in itself will probably put the wind up a number of studios and it will certainly encourage other uh, victims to come forward. I'm not suggesting that there are other people out there that definitely think of themselves as victims or should, but there may well be. And if there are, then I suspect that they will come forward. Okay, and that's everything I wanted to get your thoughts on today. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for your brilliant insights. Thanks, Colette. Thank you, Colette. As ever, follow us on social media, and we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye.